I don't know what to make of Arvia Hunter, or of Lorna Melville, or Lily Walbridge, or any of the other aliases that she adopted over her lifetime. I can picture her as the inspiration behind Chicago's Roxy, or the anti-hero in a Gillian Flynn novel, or innocent ingenue turned cunning vixen for the benefit of 24-7 cable news and reductionist storytelling. At times, she sought to escape the notoriety of her past by changing her name. Other times, she invited reporters to her cell and courted attention with ever more elaborate storytelling. Depending on who you ask, she was either born insane and wild, or made that way by circumstance. I don't think she was insane at all. I think insane was just a word that was used and misused to describe clever, passionate women. Whatever she was and whatever made her that way, there's no denying that she altered the lives of the people around her, though I suppose such a generic statement could be made about every one of us. Her actions, directly or indirectly, sent two men to jail and two others to the grave, and she left at least one with a broken heart, though I suppose you could say that he got off easy compared to the rest. All this, and yet, like most people, she's been all but forgotten. In 1905, as Arvia sat in jail, charged with bigamy, she confessed. Not to cheating on her husband, the fact is I've never seen anybody go to such lengths to deny an affair. No, she confessed to yet another crime, that of perjury. You see, back in 1901, as Arvilia lay in front of a packed courtroom, she'd had to be wheeled in on a bed, too sick to walk, and she accused her father of murdering her first husband, a man named Otis Walbridge. Now, four years later, as reporters gathered around her cell, Arvilla said that Otis was still alive, or he could be, at least, quite possible indeed. Though, I suppose if that were true, then I need to take back what I said, for Arvilla did, technically, confess to bigamy, seeing as if her first husband were indeed alive, then they were still husband and wife when she married her second husband. It's going to get messy. And if the skeleton that officers found just outside of Phillipsburg, Montana, was not that of Otis Walbridge, well then who the hell was it? Arvilia was only about 14 years old when she met and married a 21-year-old Otis Walbridge. She was born in Nebraska in 1887, though some accounts say 1885 or 1886, to Joseph and Flora Hunter. Her father would later say that those years spent on the prairie were the happiest years of his life, and given that he was in jail and charged with murder when he made that statement, I don't doubt that he felt that way. The family was originally from Pennsylvania, and they had relocated to the prairie in 1879 with one child in tow, 
that's Arvia's older sister, Berna, and another due that year, who would be Delphine May Hunter. Another son, Donald C. Hunter, Arvia, another daughter, and two more sons, Ray and Percy, followed. Joseph became Custer County's deputy sheriff under Sheriff C.T. Holliday, and accounts say that he was generally well-liked and respected within the community. A talented musician, Joseph taught his daughters, Berna and Delphine, to play the violin, and they regularly performed together at town dances. In 1889, the family began to experience what you might call a reversal of fortune. That year, they lost a child in a freak accident. A newspaper report from Nebraska states that, during a hailstorm, lightning struck the kitchen chimney and passed through the kitchen where it hit Flora. The force of it threw her to the floor and rendered her unconscious. The bolt also struck their 14-month-old daughter and killed her instantly. Strangely, the article says that no marks or evidence of lightning were visible on either the chimney or the stovepipe. Of her childhood, Berna recalled that the family had moved often, that they were poor, and that their living conditions were less than ideal. In 1896, Joseph left the sheriff's department and entered the service of B&M Railroad Company as a special agent in the detective company. About 1897, the family traveled overland to Montana in a prairie schooner. The eldest brother, Donald, struck out on his own. Flora and Joseph separated, and Flora eventually settled in Helena, Montana. Arvia went to live with her sister Delphine until she was 12 years old, when Joseph brought her to live with him in a cabin in Superior, Montana, which is near the state's western border. Two years later, Arvia met Otis Walbridge. Hiram Otis Walbridge, commonly known as Oat Walbridge, was born in 1875 to Joseph and Katie Walbridge, who owned a ranch about 30 miles west of Superior. Otis would grow to be about 5 foot 7 inches tall and 178 pounds, and according to his father, he had very small, even white teeth. Such descriptors would later be important when it came to identifying the mysterious skeleton. Otis wasn't a well-educated man, but he could write, and he was a prolific correspondent, appending at least one letter a week to his family in Deborgia as he traveled across western Montana and into Idaho in search of work. At one time, he took a job as a woodchopper, then as a brakeman in Wallace, Idaho. While working for the railroad, Otis was in an accident that left him with one blue eye and one brown, and people said that he had a peculiar way of looking at a person when he talked, in that he would hold his head sideways so as not to make eye contact and pull on his mustache. These traits would also prove important in the future when it came to bringing his alleged killer to justice. Around 1900, Arvilia took a part-time job as the Walbridge's housekeeper, looking after the home whenever Oates' stepmother Mary had to go out of town, 
sometime later, Otis and Joseph Hunter went into business together making ties, and Otis began living with the Hunter family, which at this time consisted of Joseph, Arvelia, Ray, and Percy. At age 14, Arvia was pretty and petite, with very light gray eyes that people would comment on for the rest of her days, and she was much, much too young for Otis, even by the standards of the day. Nevertheless, Otis became infatuated with her and asked Joseph for permission to marry his daughter, but Joseph said she was much too young, and the lovesick man would just have to wait until Arvilla turned 16, and Otis promised Joseph that he would wait. But that was before Arvilla confided in Otis that her father had been, as the newspapers would later say, quote, criminally intimate with her. That is, he was sexually abusing her. Upon hearing this, Otis promised to help her escape. On a cool spring evening in 1900, Ray Walbridge, that would be Oates' older brother, propped a ladder outside Arvelia's window, and she climbed down, hopped on the back of his horse, and Ray ferried her to Deborgia, where his brother was waiting for them. Ray had agreed to help, not because he was particularly sympathetic to the young lovers, but because Joseph Hunter had failed to pay their father for a set of harnesses and, I guess, in Ray's mind, helping the debtor's daughter elope with his brother was one way to collect on that debt. When Joseph Hunter awoke the next morning, he found a note from his daughter in it, she reproached him for opposing her premature marriage to Oat Walbridge and for standing in the way of what she called her salvation. She wrote that there were seven or eight men who could conceivably be responsible for her, quote, condition, and that the list included Ray and Oat Walbridge. So, okay. It sounds as though Arvelia thought she was pregnant, though I do wonder, based on what I know about her personality, if this suspicion was based in reality or had sprung from her fertile imagination. She went on to write that she had plans to partner with a woman named Gypsy who lived in Great Falls, Montana. Gypsy had apparently sent for her and she planned to marry Oat and take the name Arvia Walbridge. Then, when winter came, she would go to Helena, where she intended to use the name Arvilla Lowson, which I don't really get why you would share this kind of information with the person that you're running away from, but okay. And I can't decide if it betrays her youthful age or her lack of conviction about her escape. So Joseph reads the note, then he goes to his neighbor, a man named C.E. Castle, for advice, but Castle is just like, hey man, not my family, not my business. Later that day, a man named W.J. Murray ran into Joseph as the latter rode through DeBorgia on his way to Saltese, Montana, to head the couple off. 
By now, Joseph had his gun, and he was telling people that his daughter had been abducted, and he would, quote, fix them both, the both being either his daughter and Oat, or Oat and Ray Walbridge. Joseph returned to Superior, Montana the next day, with Arvia in tow, and he went to the sheriff and had Oat and Ray arrested for kidnapping. And before we start to think that maybe Joseph was overreacting or being an overbearing father, keep in mind that Arvilia was only 14 years old and had just run off with two grown men in their 20s. The brothers went to trial and they were acquitted of the kidnapping charge. And afterwards, Joseph told his neighbor, Castle, that though he had been beaten in court... He had the satisfaction that came from knowing that the next time he saw either Ray or Oat, he was going to shoot them dead. However, a rumor began to circulate around the county that caused Joseph to change his mind about the marriage. In addition to Oat, Arvelia had told Castle's wife and daughter that her father was acting more like a husband than a father towards her. This information naturally made its way to Castle and then to many others around the neighborhood. Years later, at her father's trial, Castle would say that he had thought about going to the police but never had. Instead, he advised Joseph to allow Oat to marry Arvilia and make the accusation go away. Though Joseph vehemently denied Arvilia's claims of incest, he nevertheless relented, and Arvilia and Oat were married by Justice of the Peace T.C. Bowen on April 17th of 1900. Either that same day or the next morning, the newlyweds, along with Joseph Hunter and Arvilia's two younger brothers, left DeBorgia, Montana, on their way east to Wyoming. In February of 1901, that's almost 10 months after the party had left DeBorgia, a letter from a correspondent in Phillipsburg, Montana, landed on the desk of a reporter for the Anaconda Standard. The reporter opened the letter and read, in detail, about a supposed murder that had occurred on Georgetown Hill, near Phillipsburg, Montana, on April 30th of 1900. The letter's author, who was Sheriff Kennedy from Johnson County, Wyoming, said the following had been told to him by a man named W.E. Grotevant. The letter contained no other names or identifying information that would help the reporter identify the alleged victim or the perpetrator. Grotevant said that he had been in Wyoming when he had met a woman and her family who had been camping in a ditch near the Crow Reservation. The woman, her husband, her father, and her two little brothers had traveled overland eastward across Montana, passed through Phillipsburg, and up the long Flint Creek Hill, and they had camped not far from the creek. While the woman had slept, her father and her husband had gone hunting. Her father returned to camp some time later, alone and covered in blood. 
He then took her husband's pack saddle and hid it somewhere in the forest before turning her husband's horse loose. The father had then terrorized the girl into silence, and it was only now, lying in this ditch next to Grotevant, that she was finally able to tell someone her story. The Standard's Phillipsburg correspondent recalled that a party answering to the description had passed through Phillipsburg at about the right time. They had shopped at a grocery store, and the grocer remembered them because the old man had persuaded him to open his store on Sunday so that he could buy flour. During their conversation, he had even gone so far as to tell the grocer that he was going to kill his soon-to-be late son-in-law before the trip was through. Honestly, what's with this fucking family like telling everyone everything about their master plan? It's like fucking stupid. Whatever. The young man, who was all too aware of his father-in-law's threats, had asked the grocer where he could get work, because he was obviously afraid to continue traveling with a man who wanted him dead. And the grocer had advised him that there was a gold coin mine that was set to start soon, just west of Anaconda, and he'd probably be able to find work there. After he had finished reading the letter... The Standard's reporter folded it back up and forwarded it to Sheriff John Connolly of Deer Lodge County, who asked that its contents not be made public until he'd had a chance to investigate, and the Standard agreed. Heavy snowfall at the time that the letter was received made conducting a search for the body of the supposed victim out of the question— so Connolly wrote to Sheriff Kennedy in Wyoming so that he could get more information from Grotevant and try to find out the name of the woman who had told him this story, and was able to find out pretty quickly that the woman's name was Arvia Walbridge. Grotevant said that the last that he'd heard, the old man, a.k.a. Joseph Hunter, who was now going by the name Frank Meyer, was working just outside of Billings, and Arvia was living nearby at Mrs. Davidson's lodging house and was still talking about going to Great Falls. The old man had been trying to see her and to talk to her, but she had refused. In a rage after one of her rebuffs, Frank, a.k.a. Joseph, had thrown a rock through the window of the boarding house. By the time Sheriff Conley tracked Arvilia, she had made her way to Great Falls, Montana, and she was living with her husband. No, not Otis Walbridge. Arvilia had remarried to a man named George Melville. As Arvilia sat with Sheriff Conley, she said that in June of 1899, her father had taken her from her sister's home in Judith Basin to an old log cabin. He then told Arvelia that she was not, as she had believed, his biological daughter. Then he proceeded to sexually assault her. And biological daughter or not, that's still not only gross, but criminal. They then continued to DeBorgia, Montana, and there he continued to assault her through the winter months. She said she had met Otis Walbridge in the winter of 1899, and she had told him of her father's depravity, 
and he had agreed to marry her and to take her away from her father. But her father found out and brought her back. He then locked her in the house for two weeks before she managed to escape again. Eventually, her father agreed to the marriage on the condition that she would say nothing else about the improper relations between himself and Arvia. So she had married Otis, and on the night of their wedding, the party had departed for Wyoming. She said that, almost immediately after the wedding, her young husband had begun to abuse her, and her father had said that he would kill Ot at the first opportunity. She had relayed this information to her husband, and from there on out, she said that the whole party had been in fear of Joseph, and Arvilia and Oat had actually made plans to leave the group and to set out on their own. So I don't know if she was more afraid of her father than she was of Otis, or if she had just picked the lesser of two evils, as they say. On April 30th, they stopped in Granite County near Phillipsburg and made camp not far from a large two-story farmhouse, and Joseph invited Oat to go deer hunting. As the pair walked into the forest, Joseph had been carrying both rifles, and Otis was armed only with a knife. Now, to the surprise of absolutely no one, Joseph returned to camp alone and with blood on his hands. Arvilia said that she had accused her father of killing her husband, an accusation that he neither affirmed or denied, though I feel like the bloody clothing was affirmation enough. As her father began to burn his bloodied clothes, Arvilia heard a wagon and she raced to the road, but her father caught her and hit her over the head and knocked her unconscious before she could hail the passers-by. By the time Arvia came to, her father had burned Oat's clothing and had packed up the wagon, and the family departed the camp in the dead of night. They traveled under the last name of Meyer, and Arvia posed as Mrs. Meyer, her father Joseph's wife, rather than his widowed daughter, and Joseph threatened to kill her if she ever mentioned Otis's name again. Her father drove them rapidly east until the horses were exhausted, and they were forced to stop and rest at a garbage farm just outside of Butte, Montana. They continued at this pace until they reached Wyoming. All the while, Joseph abused Arvilia and kept her away from other people and he enlisted his sons, Ray and Percy, to watch her and to report back to him on everything that she did. In September, they passed through the Crow Reservation, and they stayed with a man named Joseph Cooper. A Cooper noted that Arvilia was very young, and Joseph said that he should never have married the girl. However, as Cooper would later testify, during the three weeks that they stayed at his house, they had sustained the relations of husband and wife. Cooper knew this because the curtain that separated the hunter's beds from the rest of the home did not extend the entire length of the room, and Cooper had seen, quote, with his naked eye, the arrangement of the beds and of the hunter family. So, that's nice. 
The Hunter family moved to a quarry about two miles from Cooper's home. Joseph went to work for the railroad company once again, where in January of 1901, as luck would have it, the family would meet Warren Grotevant, who was a deputy sheriff out of Buffalo, Wyoming, but who at this time was working as a stonecutter at the quarry alongside Joseph. Grotevant and Joseph talked at length, and Joseph told him that Arvia was his wife and that they were practically, if not legally, married, and they had been ever since he had secured her from the Mormons in Utah and had promised to give her a good home. Her husband, Joseph said, a man named Walbridge, had deserted Arvilla in Utah. Though Joseph still kept a close watch over his daughter, Arvilia was able to tell Grotevant that her husband had not, as her father-slash-husband had claimed, deserted her, but that her father Joseph had murdered him and had threatened to kill her as well if she ever told. Grotevant advised Arvilia to escape at the first opportunity. He did not, I guess, see himself as her first opportunity. Nor did the two others who had been present during Arvilia's confession. Instead, she would make her escape in February of 1901 with the help of a man named Mart Scott of the Crow Reservation, and Joseph, once again, set out after her. This time, as Joseph told Cooper, he planned to get her back and then to drop her back at her sister's in Judith Basin and to be done with her. Joseph did track her to Billings, and he went to the police station, introduced himself as Joseph Meyer, and requested the officer go and get his wife back. However, as luck would have it, the officer had known Joseph from when they had both lived in Carbondale, Montana, and he knew that his name wasn't Meyer, and he knew that Arvilia wasn't his wife. And to Joseph, he was like, hey man, not a chance because this is all, you know, a little fucking sketchy. Joseph was still in Billings and living under the alias Frank Meyer on November 3rd of 1901 when he was finally arrested for the murder of Otis Walbridge. As soon as the snow had melted, Arvilia had gone with officers to the campsite near Phillipsburg and led them over the ground until they found two human bones which had been dragged and gnawed clean by wild animals. But these bones alone weren't enough to prove that Otis was dead or that Joseph had killed him, and officers were unable to find the rest of his skeleton. Joseph insisted that this was because Oates' body was not out there, because he wasn't dead, not so far as Joseph knew anyhow. As Joseph told it, Otis and Arvilia's marriage was over almost before it began. Though he had never heard an angry word pass between the two, he could tell from their actions that the two simply were not getting along. On the day Otis had disappeared, they made camp near Phillipsburg, at the foot of Georgetown Hill, and Joseph had decided to go hunting. 
Otis, he said, had tagged the lawn, and as they waded through the forest, Otis began to lament about his marriage. Arvilia, he said, wanted things that he just couldn't afford to buy her, and she was constantly upbraiding him. Joseph had told Otis that Arvilia was still a young woman, and he advised his son-in-law to overlook these things, that she would essentially grow out of them. <laughs> Which she definitely does not grow out of them. But Oat had already decided to abandon his new wife. He told Joseph that he had left a note in his trunk, then he just walked off without his horse, or his pack saddle, or food, or any other, like, basic necessities. So, that's a little suspect. Anyway, Joseph said that he had returned to camp, alone, and he had given Arvilia Oates' letter. She then read it and burst into tears, and then she said that they had to go and look for him. Joseph took the letter from his sobbing daughter, and he tried to read it two or three times, he said, but the spelling and the writing were so poor that he could never make out really what it said. To his best recollection, it began, Dear wife, I have done more for you than any of those fellows at Twelve Mile. He went on to write that he was going to leave. He gave no specific reason as to why he had decided to so abruptly abandon his marriage, and his horse, and his belongings. A father and daughter tracked Otis to Phillipsburg. Otis apparently had nails in the bottom of his shoes that gave them a very distinctive pattern that was easy to follow. The next day, they found more tracks in the direction of Anaconda. As to why Joseph was traveling under the assumed name of Frank Meyer, he said it was because he was afraid of his wife, Flora, and the letters found in his pockets indicated that he was mixed up in several questionable transactions, as the newspapers put it. Joseph uh, did provide Sheriff Conley with directions to the place where he and Oat, he said, had parted ways. And so the search party returned to the area around Georgetown Hill on November 8th and 9th of that year. And this time, they found a possible campsite and evidence of a campfire, but no evidence of anything like buttons or irons that suggested that clothing or other personal effects had been burned, as Arvilia had said they had. Then, in a thick of timber, about half a mile from Georgetown camp, officers found what they assumed to be Oat Walbridge's remains. The skeleton was intact, except for the skull. Searchers fanned out, and they located pieces of shattered bone and clothing, which matched the description of what Otis had been wearing when he had left Georgia, Montana. Some of the items of clothing looked as though they had been cut from the body, and the undershirt they found was covered in blood, and it bore a cut mark in the position of the shirt that would have covered the man's heart. The remains and other evidence, including a portion of the soil on which the body had lain, were brought back to Phillipsburg for further examination. 
From the skeleton, officers determined that the gunman had likely shot Otis once in the hip, probably while the young man had his back turned or possibly while he was running away. Then, as Otis lay on the ground, the gunman shot him in the head. This was evidenced by the destroyed skull and also the large number of buckshot found embedded in the ground. The assailant may have also stabbed him in the chest, as evidenced by the cut undershirt. Now, based largely on Arvilia's testimony, a coroner's jury indicted Joseph Hunter for Otis's murder, and he was held without bail. According to his jailers, he showed some intention that he would escape if the opportunity should arise, and a Sheriff Metcalf placed guards at his cell. Joseph secured George Maywood as his defense counsel, a competent and ambitious man who set about trying to prove that the skeleton that they had found was not, in fact, Otis Walbridge, but some other unfortunate soul entirely. To this end, he began looking for witnesses to testify that the clothing found with the body matched the clothing worn by a prospector who had apparently disappeared from the area about two years prior to Otis Walbridge's alleged murder. He also located a couple of witnesses from Phillipsburg who would testify that they had seen Oat, or at least someone who looked exactly like Oat, after the date of his supposed death. The trial became something of a spectacle. I mean, you've got, you've got murder, you've got incest, you've got aliases and a poorly conceived escape plan. And the tiny courtroom in Phillipsburg, Montana, was entirely inadequate to accommodate the throng of people that sought admission to the courtroom every day. Uh, to prove to the jury that the skeleton found was, in fact, Otis Walbridge, the prosecution called Dr. Cunningham, who testified as to the probable height and weight of the person to whom the skeleton had belonged, and also brought forth family and friends to identify the clothing that was found near the body. On March 19th of 1902, Arvilia was carried into the court on a sickbed, she had been ill since her father's arrest and reluctant to testify, for if her father were acquitted, she feared that he would kill her as well. The morbidly curious, who had crowded the courtroom to hear Arvilia's salacious testimony, were disappointed, for before she had arrived, a Judge Napton ordered that the court be cleared of all spectators while Arvilia gave evidence. Arvilia told the court that on the evening of the wedding, Joseph had suggested to Otis that it would be a quite a joke for them to hitch up the team and drive out of town, and the people would be surprised in the morning to find that they had gone. Otis agreed with this plan, and that night they left. Just before they reached Phillipsburg, Joseph and Otis engaged in a round of target shooting and Joseph became displeased at something that happened during that event and told Arvilia that he would kill Oat at the first opportunity. Seriously, what is with this fucking family telling their plans? Let's 
I don't, I don't understand. I don't. Arvelia warned her husband of this, and the two hatched a plan to part with Joseph and Arvelia's younger brothers at Silver Lake near Phillipsburg. And they made the mistake of telling Joseph of their intentions. The very next evening, they made a camp at Georgetown Flats, and the two men went hunting, and only one came back. The prosecution also offered into evidence letters written by Arvelia while she had been a prisoner in her father's home, and others that were written after she had escaped to Billings. In them, she had, quote, breathed undying hatred against her father, and warned him never to come near her, and threatened, if he did so, she would tell of an incident that happened near Phillipsburg, which, if known, would land him in state's prison for a few years. Now, the story that Arvilia told was a damning one, but let's not forget that there were two other hunter children that were present when all of this was going on. Prior to trial, a 12-year-old Ray Hunter and 9-year-old Percy had been held in Anaconda as witnesses. When questioned, they had denied Arvilia's story, but the officers who questioned the boys said that they had made some important admissions, and they believed that when the boys were confronted with the, quote, rehearsal of the discrepancies among the several stories they had told, they would break down and tell the truth. But their stories, it seems, never wavered, for at trial, they gave a similar account to the one told by their father, Joseph. Both boys agreed that Joseph and Otis had gone out hunting, and that only Joseph had returned, but they denied that he had returned to camp with blood on his clothes, or that he had struck their sister. Ray said that it was Arvilia, not Joseph, who had suggested that they travel under the name of Meyer, and that she pass herself off as Joseph's wife. Arvilia and Joseph had told the boys that they were taking on this new identity so that Oat would never find them, which is it's peculiar because after taking on the name Meyer, they had followed Otis's footprints to Anaconda, where they lost the trail. They had then traveled to Butte to pick up their mail, and they had expected to find Otis there. Arvilia had told Ray and Percy that unless they found O in Butte, they would keep the name Meyer. So the obvious question to my mind is, why take on the name Meyer to hide from Otis, only to then set out in search of Otis? Makes no sense. Anyway, according to Ray, they had kept the name Meyer until Arvilia had left them when they were staying on the Crow Reservation in Wyoming. She went away, Ray said, uh, not because she was afraid of Joseph, but because Ray and Percy had discovered that Arvilia was having, quote, improper relations with some other man. As to the incest accusation, Ray said that he had always slept between his father and his sister and that it simply wasn't possible that anything had happened between the two. Younger brother Percy gave the same basic testimony as his brother Ray. 
and it seems that Maywood was never able to find evidence that the body was that of the missing prospector, for it never came up in court. What he did offer were the two witnesses who said that they had seen Otis Walbridge alive at a motel as a part of a group of traveling musicians. A problem with that story was Otis didn't know how to play any instrument. H. Levine, a clothing merchant in Phillipsburg, testified that the undershirt found with the skeleton, which was supposedly identical to an undershirt submitted by Otis's family, were different in that one had a seam and the other did not. He also testified as to the effects of weather on fabric and how certain weather conditions can shrink some materials. And the trousers that were found with the body, he said, would have been too small to have been worn by Otis Walbridge. On March 20th, Joseph Hunter took the stand in his own defense, and he basically repeated what he had told Sheriff Conley just after his arrest. But the jury, unconvinced by his defense or his testimony, found Joseph guilty of the murder and sentenced him to 99 years in prison. Joseph Hunter continued to maintain his innocence and stated that he had been convicted on prejudiced evidence, and as one might expect, he was particularly bitter towards his daughter, Ervilia. It's worth noting that all of the jurors thought that he was guilty of some crime. Ten had wanted to convict on first-degree murder, but two were unconvinced about the premeditation aspect of the crime, and had held out for second-degree murder so that Joseph wouldn't hang. Following the trial, Arvia's brothers, Ray and Percy, were sent to an orphanage before they were reunited with their mother, Flora, in Helena, Montana. Arvilia and her husband, George, returned to Great Falls, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> no, that is not how this story ends. By age 16, give or take a year or two, Arvia Hunter Walbridge Melville had been married twice, widowed once, had testified against her father and had helped send him to prison for the murder of her first husband. And though Joseph continued to profess his innocence, there was little hope that anyone would listen or would believe him. Until 1905, three years after her father's trial had concluded, Arvilia resurrected her husband, Otis Walbridge, if ever so briefly, and around the same time, she helped send yet another man to the grave. Thank you to everyone out there for listening tonight. There was just a too much here to cover to fit it all into one episode, so we will be back on June 2nd for the second half of this episode. <laughs>